Esther chapter five, proper training is crucial. I've seen the difference it can make as I've worked alongside law enforcement and emergency services personnel. Those of you in the military, either current or former, or the families of those who courageously serve, you also understand the importance of proper training. You train and you train and you train some more. You sit through classes, you participate in drills, you do role plays. You do it because you know that once the real thing happens, you're going to fall back on your training. It's gonna be something almost automatic. The emphasis and the trust we place on proper training stands in stark contrast to the lack of training that often accompanies a call to serve the Lord. Christians are pressed into service with little or no time to train as disciples. Gideon, a good Old Testament example, he had no time or training as a disciple. He was hiding from the Midianites when the angel of the Lord came to him to press him into service as the one who would deliver Israel from her enemies. In the New Testament, little or no time or training transpired in many cases. For example, the first seven men chosen as deacons were themselves recently saved. What compensated for the lack of time or training? Well, concerning Gideon, you read that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Concerning the seven deacons, you read that they were men full of the Holy Spirit. Esther had no time or training as a disciple, as we've been developing her story these last few weeks, we've seen that she wasn't walking with the Lord at all. She was in sin. We wanna take a look at the Holy Spirit now leading this lady to learn how we can be more aware of and dependent upon his leading in our lives. Now the Holy Spirit, you know, is God. He is a person, he's not a force. Everybody's got that picture of the first Star Wars, you know, with Luke going through the Death Star, and he's not, Luke, use the force. And he's like, what? Who's talking? Oh, it's dead Obi-Wan, you know? Use the force, and he just kind of, oh, and he beats that, you know. That was a pretty good impression, I think. Oh, man, you're a rough audience. The Holy Spirit is not a force. As much as we emphasize as biblical Christians, as evangelical Christians, the Holy Spirit is a person, the third person of the Trinity, we, we, we a lot of times just think of him as a force that we tap into, but he's not, he's a person. When we talk about his leading, we're talking about a person who is God, who guides and directs our lives. I am not against training or discipline in the Christian walk. You, you can't read the Bible and be against that. We should be studying God's word. We should be spending time in prayer. We should be sharing our faith. We should be fellowshipping with one another. Those are the four building blocks of the Christian life. If you got saved at a Billy Graham crusade or a Franklin Graham event or a Harvest crusade, uh, the counselors told you those four things as they handed you the, the little booklet that says those four things. Pray, share your faith read the word, fellowship with other Christians. But there's a danger, a grave danger, of trusting our own preparation and training over the leading of the Holy Spirit because in every other area of our life, we trust in our training. The more mature, uh, mature we get as believers, the more we tend to rely on ourselves rather than on the leading of the Holy Spirit. It's a pitfall we need to recognize and avoid. The leading of the Holy Spirit is not a reward for holiness. It's not reserved for super saints. It is the inheritance of every believer for each of us all of the time. 
A decree had been issued in Persia that all Jews anywhere in its provinces were to be exterminated on a certain day. Mordecai was urging his niece, Esther, whom he had raised, to plead for her people before King Ahasuerus to go before the king uninvited could mean death. Uh, I guess it'd be similar to try and walk up to the president of the United States. Could mean death. <laughs> Unless he, I maybe, you know, pointed his Blackberry at you or something like that. I don't know. But anyway, that's kind of an inside joke. You know, President Obama started his administration years ago with a Blackberry, and that's how I knew he wasn't going to be a very good president. Whatever happened to Blackberries? Anybody here have a Blackberry? Raise your hand so I can ridicule you. Anyone? No? I wouldn't do that. Not. All right, so verse 15 of chapter 4 is where we're going to begin. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me, neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. Esther had not been walking with God, not by a long shot. But now in a moment's time, she was fully up to spiritual speed. And she declared, if I perish, I perish. With those words, we can say that Esther offered herself a living sacrifice. Because that's exactly what she was doing. She was alive. She was willing to sacrifice her life to go before the king and plead for her people. In one of the most popular verses of the New Testament, Romans 12:1, we're told to do that. Paul said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. In other words, it's the, it's the logical thing to do. Of course, you would want to obey God because he has your best interests in mind has a plan for your life, which is way better than anything that you could do, uh, and so it's reasonable. Now, it's an interesting verse here because it doesn't say you should live sacrificially. It says you should present yourself a living sacrifice, and there's a big difference. Living sacrificially is noble, but you remain in control of your life. You decide when you're going to sacrifice, what you're going to sacrifice, and for how long. And so there are people who live sacrificially. They say, well, you know, I, I, could, I could buy this, but I'll go ahead and give this, or I'll do this and that. But it, it, they make these decisions as they go along based on their own personal standards. If you're a living sacrifice, you've given up control. By definition, you say, I'm gonna get on the altar, and I might as well be tied up there. God is the one in control telling you what to do, when and for how long. Esther's famous phrase is a sort of commentary on what it means to be a living sacrifice. You must be willing to perish. In fact, you must perish if you're going to be a living sacrifice. I submit to you that the moment she determined to go before the king, she perished. Her hopes, her dreams, her plans, her priorities, everything that had previously been Esther perished. Even if the king decided to spare her life, it would never be the same for her afterwards. He would know she was a Jew, which is a thing she had kept from him. And so she was, in every sense, an example in the Old Testament of a real, live, living sacrifice. To be led by the Holy Spirit requires that you perish. 
your independent hopes and dreams and plans and priorities must be sacrificed in favor of God's for your life. You must perish on God's altar. This is where people get all freaked out, where they think, I don't know if I want to do that because I know God will send me to Africa. <laughs> Here in the, Amer- in the United States, it's always Africa, isn't it? It's like, if I give my life to God, he's going to send me to the deepest, darkest places of Africa. Actually, there's some nice places in Africa. I don't want to go there. <laughs> but the whole idea is, I mean, you know, we have this idea about God that, you know, don't, don't ever, and you've said this, or you've heard somebody say this, they said, don't ever say you wouldn't go there. <laughs> because at the minute you superstitiously say, I'll never go to Hanford, oh, guess where you're going? Yeah, I mean, God does some odd things in our lives, but looking back on them, we see a plan, we see a reason. And, and God isn't about trying to always be contrary to your desires. In fact, the Bible says he wants to give you the desires of your heart. Oftentimes, the desires of your heart are not the right desires, so he works in you and through you and with you to mold and shape your desires so that when he does give you the desires of your heart, they are the ones that he also has ordained. So anyway, uh, giving your life as a living sacrifice means that you perish in terms of what you're hoping to do and dreaming about and planning for, at least in the sense that you've relinquished control. And if God wants to do some of the things that you want, that's fine. I, I, I don't know if this will register with you, but um, I've told this story before. When you're 60 years old and you've been here 30 years, you've told every story before except what happened today, and I already told you I had some root canals, uh, or no, uh, crown work done. So anyway, so when I got out of college, I realized, well, I went to college because I realized if I didn't go to college, I'd have to go to work, and uh, I was better at college than I was at work. And then when I got out of college, I realized if I didn't go to more college, I would have to get a job. And uh, all I'd ever done is gone to college. So I tried to get into the uh, master's degree program at Cal State San Bernardino for counseling. And I thought, I will counsel people, I will help people. And uh, I don't know if anybody could have been worse off than I was as a non-believer at the time, but you know, you know how you think when you're not a believer. I thought I could really help people. And, uh, and then I didn't get chosen for the program. So I had to get a real job, but uh, that's a whole nother story. Uh, but you know, I had this kind of desire, I don't know where it came from, to help people. And then years later, you know, I come to know the Lord, and at some point I realized that God had me in a place where I, I was actually helping people. They don't always know it, but I'm, I'm actually teaching the word of God. I'm giving counsel to people based on the word of God. In so far as I stick with what God said and I just make that clear and, and depend upon that, I'm not only helping people, I'm declaring they can be saved forever that they can have the forgiveness of their sins, that their marriage can work out, and all of these other things. And so the Lord really does want to give you the desires of your heart. You just sometimes have to perish first in order for them to come around. Lying on an altar seems a little scary I mean, when you put it that way. But there's a good scary, isn't there? Don't we like to be scared? Don't you like to be scared? Right now, under one of your seats. Oh, no, I, I, I can't do that. If we were a hipster church, I would have done that. I'd have something scary under one of your seats, and you'd jump. You never know. 
We ride scary rides, we watch scary movies, or some of us do anyway. The kind of spiritual scariness that comes with lying on the altar and giving your life to God is in that category. It's a good scary, it's an exciting scary, it's an adventurous scary. The team that's going down to Columbia, that's kind of scary, you know? I mean, it's, it's, it's not uh, the scariest place they could go, but it's close to it in terms of El Secreto, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So, but it's an adventure. It's an, it's a, it's a, it, I didn't say it was crazy, I said it was scary. And there's a big difference. Sometimes people do crazy things and then they blame it on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit really gets blamed for a lot of stuff. Um, he's like the, the crazy half-brother of the Trinity sometimes, you know, and people do these, these nutty things and they, they say, well, the Spirit came upon me and I jumped through the uh, window and hit my head on the ground and went to the hospital. Okay, what, what happened to the Holy Spirit? When did he go nuts? You know, so uh, there's a difference between crazy and scary. Esther's leading began when she perished. She immediately began practicing at least two Christian disciplines, brand new for her. Number one, she was strengthened by fasting. And number two, she did it in fellowship with others who were like-minded. She immediately identified with her people and said, we all together need to fast. There are important spiritual disciplines we should engage ourselves in. We should pursue all the spiritual training we can. Just be careful to keep it in perspective. Esther would undoubtedly grow deeper in her knowledge of and love for God, but she was just as spiritual right then as she ever would be in terms of discovering God's leading. We're gonna see here in a minute, she gets a remarkable leading from the Holy Spirit as a, uh, we would say she's a brand new Christian. I don't know what's going on in her heart, but until this moment, she had no inclination to follow God, and now she's calling for fasting, she's in fellowship with her people, and her strategy can only come from God. In verse one of chapter five, now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house, while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house facing the entrance of the house. So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight and the king held out to Esther the blackberry that was in his hand. And then <laughs> Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. Follow through was important. Willingness is not faithfulness. Willingness is not faithfulness. So when she said, I'll go and I'll, if I perish, I perish, then she did it. Being willing to, she had time to think about it and, and she did it anyway. Faithfulness is what puts spiritual life in motion. A lot of us are willing to do things, and then you wake up one day and you realize, I've never done any of them. I always thought I would later. And so willingness needs to become faithfulness. God broke down a door. He busted it wide open for Esther to plead for her people. Verse three, and the king said to her, what do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. What's wrong with these guys? All these crazy kings, uh, uh, half of my kingdom, whatever you want, I'll do for you. Why don't you just settle down? But we would say, thank you, Lord. All Esther had to do was lay out her request and everything would be over. She took a deep breath and here's what she said. If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to a banquet that I have prepared for him. 
And the king said, bring Haman quickly that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. Great idea. Get Haman in the king's dining hall and then drop the dime on him. Fabulous plan. Verse six, at the banquet of wine, uh, the king said to Esther, what is your petition? (laughs) Well, they go out of their way to say it was a banquet of wine. So I think he was a little bit tipsy. It shall be granted you. What is your request? Up to half the kingdom. It shall be done. Then Esther answered and said, my petition is this. Save my people. No. It says, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them tomorrow. I will do as the king has said. Don't pretend that this makes any sense to you. Esther's request only makes sense because you've read chapter six and seven. There you find out that Haman builds a gallows to hang Mordecai on, but Ahasuerus ends up promoting Mordecai instead. Once Esther busts Haman, Ahasuerus ends up having him executed on the very gallows that he had built for Mordecai. And so we see this as a tremendous strategy, but we don't know this yet, and neither does Esther. Her request makes no sense at all from a strategic human point of view. She had the king's ear. He had promised to grant her any request. It seemed the perfect opportunity to plead for the Jews. A delay might prove disastrous because after all, Ahasuerus was fickle. He could easily change his mind and his mood. Haman had the king's ear too and might discover Esther's plans, heading her off somehow. Now seemed the time to speak. I think if you were a Jew fasting, and you heard, guess what? The king agreed to see Esther, and guess what? She uh, had him at a banquet, and guess what? She's gonna invite him and Haman to a banquet tomorrow. (laughs) Did she not seal the deal? Can she not go for the clothes? Doesn't she have, you know, what it takes? What's the matter with her? She doesn't speak, she delays, inviting the king and Haman to another banquet the next day, I say it has to be the leading of the Holy Spirit. He knew what was going to happen in chapters six and seven, and he led Esther accordingly. It's the only explanation that makes any sense. If you wanna praise Esther for anything, it's for the discipline as a brand new Christian, we would say, of following the leading of the Holy Spirit rather than what made sense to her and to all those around her. We're often not patient to wait. We get involved with the Lord and begin to sense his leading us, and then we step in and take over based upon our own wisdom or training. We do what makes sense to us. And I'm not saying it doesn't make sense. I mean, you look at it and you think, hey, this makes sense. This is what we should do right now. Have you prayed about it? Well, of course I've prayed about it. Well, what does that mean? I mean, I don't wanna diss anybody's prayers or act like praying isn't isn't sincere but a lot of times you're just praying about what you've already decided you're gonna do and asking God to kind of help you do it. It, You're kind of seeing the Holy Spirit as a force. You're saying, hey, I'm gonna go in and destroy the Death Star and uh, I might need you, Lord, to to guide me a little bit as I do that. And you're not open maybe to to think, yeah, no, we don't need you in that uh, capacity. We need you over here doing that. And, And there's just a lot you know, as you go through the Bible where you see these guys and you think, hey, yeah, this is the perfect opportunity or, you know, in, in the book of Acts where Paul, uh, you know, 
he's trying to preach the gospel in Europe, and God says, yeah, or in Asia, rather, and God says, yeah, no. You're, you're no, <laughs> no, <laughs> you don't understand. No, I forbid you. I forbid you to preach the gospel in Asia because you're going to have a call over here to Macedonia. And then he answers the Macedonian call, and he goes to see the Macedonian man. The Macedonian man is a woman, and it's a little disappointing all in all. But Paul preaches the gospel, and it opens up all of Europe. A lot of fantastic things happen. And so God has a plan. You saw J.R. Pactor talk about weakness. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. We don't want people to say, man, what a great plan you guys had. What, look at that strategy or strategery, whatever you want to say, you know, as George Bush would say. You, you, you know, that, that was a brilliant strategy. You want people to look at your life and scratch their head and say, I, I don't see how this happened at all. You're kind of a fool. And you say, well, the foolish things of the world confound the wise. And we always want God to do something amazing, but we don't always want him to do it using us in a capacity of weakness. We want it to happen in a capacity of strength where people look at us and say, and you had that going, you had that thing. And um, that's not the way God works. Probably the most public example of this in the life of our fellowship has to do with the purchase of the facilities that we're in right now. We were finally able to buy land. Those of you who've been around for a number of years, we had that beautiful, perfectly situated five-acre parcel on Fargo. We paid it off in less than a year, I think. It made sense to us to begin our building project. Only once we did, nothing really made sense. All of our efforts to draw an affordable but adequate building were dismal failures. We had many meetings in which we kicked around many ideas. All of them were solid, creative ideas, but they were our ideas, ideas that made sense to us based on our assumption that owning the land meant that God wanted us to build on it, and that wasn't the case at all. God wanted us to use the land as collateral to buy this building. And, but you know what? One day we had to perish and say, we're not going to build on our property. And it was hard for me. I don't know how, how it was for some of you old-timers, but when I had to get up in front of the church and say, um, doesn't look like we're going to be building on our land, more than one person, not in a mean way, but more than one person came up and said, why did we buy the land if we're not going to build on it? Because doesn't it make sense if you buy land, what are you going to do with it? <laughs> You're going to build something on it. Uh, but uh, God had other plans, better plans. We were going to build a, like a little, you know, it got down to where we were looking at storage sheds. <laughs> hey, some of those storage sheds are pretty expensive. And uh, we were going to have like 15 services, you know, because we have... <laughs> And so uh, we ended up over here, and it's been great. Uh, so anyway, that's the kind of thing that we're looking at. As soon as we perished, the Holy Spirit began to lead us in a new direction. I don't want to have begun in the Spirit only to continue in the flesh. I want to discover and discern the leading of the Holy Spirit, and I want it for you as well. We should maintain a healthy fear of trusting our own training and our own wisdom in this Christian life. The disciplines of the Christian life, uh, they're so that I can enjoy God more. Yeah, they mature me and they strengthen me and they bless me and they grow me as a Christian, but don't lose sight of the fact that, uh, you know, I don't pray just to build spiritual muscles. I pray because it's spending time with my Father in heaven and my Lord Jesus Christ because I have that presence with them. And, um, you know, so, yes, uh, uh, maintain uh, spiritual discipline, grow and mature, 
but don't lose dependency on the Holy Spirit. If you're not being led, maybe you're not dead. God's leading requires daily that we offer ourselves a living sacrifice and moment by moment that we patiently wait on the Lord. Amen?